Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about sales at startups and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and I've led sales at four companies, twice as CEO, twice as head of sales, and always with a love for the job and a fondness for fun stories. Currently, I lead sales at self-driving delivery car company Udell. I love startup history, scrappy sales and stories, and I'm excited to learn them and share them with you. Uh, lately, the thing I've been thinking about is, is what's it like to sell new technologies? Uh, it's what I do in my day-to-day. Self-driving cars are unequivocally going to make a huge difference in the world in the coming future. I mean, there's no doubt about it, and you could see it either in the news or on roads in, in states around the country. And as I think about my personal sales process, I begin wondering what was it like for well, for Pan Am to tell people that flying in planes is all right and it's going to be the future. How did salespeople at gene sequencing companies in the early 2000s cope with high costs and the still developing technology? I don't know these answers, but that's, that's what I'm looking for, the patterns for these sales that can be found throughout history. And, and learning from those people is really interesting and really essential. And I don't know most of those answers. And to be honest, I'm still figuring out those questions to ask and, and looking for those patterns and those stories. Well, that's, that's the reason I'm excited to interview people like today's guests who are at the forefront of helping companies understand the problems that they're solving and sell their products. On this episode, we've got Ryan Williams. And here's a little bio about Ryan. Ryan Williams is a San Francisco-based executive coach who is deeply passionate about the professional and personal development of high-potential leaders and organizations. As a coach and advisor, J. Ryan is trusted by founders and CEOs backed by the world's top venture funds, U.S. Navy SEALs, and former Top Gun fighter pilots, as well as aspiring executives. Before launching his coaching and facilitation practice, J. Ryan spent over 10 years helping to build some of the fastest growing companies backed by Silicon Valley-based VC firms and has been instrumental for multiple companies as they grew from zero to $100 million in revenue, including direct leadership, which launched a $58 million sales team and created a two-year training curriculum for 350 employees and sales coaching for the CEO of Envision App, which has gone on to close 95% of the Fortune 500. As keynote speaker, J. Ryan's talks have taken him to 13 countries, and he's been hosted at universities like University of Chicago and Berkeley Haas, and all these fantastic places around the world. We talk about a lot here with Ryan, ranging from how to price a product, how to fight through competition when Google's joined your industry, and how to sell a VR headset to displace cadavers in hospitals. That's right. We go all over the place. I hope you enjoy and don't get too squeamish during my episode with Ryan Williams. All right, Ryan, welcome to the gong. Thank you. We are going to have a great time today. Uh, Me and my Argyle, you and your checkered shirts. Um, Here's where I want to start. So... I want to hear the story of uh, what happened when you first found out that the company you're working for, Adderall, which at the time was doing less than $500,000 a year in sales, pretty small company, learned that Google had released a competing product. Tell me the story of learning about that. Well, there's two layers. So for me, the, um, 
the real challenge was I had just moved to San Francisco not very long before that. I had just moved in with this girlfriend of mine. And, uh, and so when I heard that Google remarketing had been released, I went home and told her the bad news that I wasn't going to make rent. The company was probably going to fail. And I was going to move home and live with my parents. And, uh, and was she invited to live with your parents? Mm, she wasn't. No. Well, she, I don't think she was that interested. <laughs> okay. she's, she's really enjoyed being in San Francisco. And uh, my parents had just moved to Texas, and so I was going to go live with them. Nobody really wants to move to Dallas. Like, what are, we, who are you kidding, right? It's too hot there and, and not that fun. But um, her response was, do you think that you'll learn from this? And I've taken that as a really important question. Right. So that's that's been an anchor question for me is like, what will I learn regardless of, you know, how fast will we grow and how much money we'll make and what we'll do? The founders of Ad AdRoll, they came out and said, look, Google's released the same product. Uh, it's pretty similar. It's going to educate the market. Everything's fine. Just go back to your desk and keep working. And so at that point, I was just a few weeks in and I was reaching out to potential advertisers who had e-commerce stores. Um, mostly those who had attended a conference or we knew, you know, were similar to the handful of customers we did have. About two, three weeks after that announcement, we started seeing customers show up and say, hey, we've been using Google remarketing for a few weeks now. It's working. We want to see what else is like it. And so they were right. You know, I don't know if they knew they were going to be right, and I'd love to ask them. Uh, I, I, I should. Uh, but but it started to educate the market. And it started to tell people, like, hey, there's this thing. It's called ad retargeting. People know about it now because it's tied to all the behavioral advertising that's had a bad press the last few years. But in 2011, this was something that people just didn't do. You know, basically the ability to show an ad to somebody after they leave a website would have conversion rates three to ten times higher than other advertising. So the ROI was just through the roof, and our customers really liked that. But... Um, it did give quite a quite a bit of heartburn <laughs> at the beginning. How, how different was your conversation with one of your clients before Google announced it? What did that look like? What did you emphasize? Yeah. And then in the you know four or three to four months after Google released our product, what changed in the way you spoke with customers? That's a great question because we you know we had um, for the first year that I was there, we were selling this uh, a very highly educational pitch. This is what retargeting is. This is what it does. We would say things very specifically like, do you know how if you see an ad after you leave a website, you know, that's what we do. Uh, would you like to be able to reach customers uh, when they read the news after they decided they didn't buy your shoes? Uh, those types of questions. And so after people started hearing about Google's remarketing product and started seeing it more in the wild and that started to catch up, the pitch changed slightly to you're familiar with this, do you know about retargeting, do you know about remarketing? And when customers would recognize that, then it would be very, you know, it was it was uh, very straightforward. Here's what you can try, you know. And it was really, it was about, you know, trying one or two things at the same time to see what works best. And we would win bake-offs for, you know, the first few years regularly because we had more inventory than some of the other partners that were in the same space. Um, and having more inventory in the ad game means you can bid and be more efficient. So that part was good. But um, but those conversations did change. You know, they changed because the market was being educated. They, were, you know, founders were right. So when we try to expand that that same learning to other companies, and now you're coaching and, and working with lots of different startups, or you have over the last few years, the educational part of a new industry is something I really want to understand because when a new company launches something in a new industry, 
-hmm. when they need to teach people about how to use something for the first time, when you're a, a virtual reality headset maker selling into doctor's office or medical schools for training on surgery, before you even begin to talk about pricing or features or any implementation, mm -hmm. you're talking about, well, this is why, and this is how it works, and this is the state of the technology. How should either the, whoever's doing the sales, either the founder mm -hmm. or the sales people at startups in new industries think about educating their market? Yeah, that's great, because I think most of us, when we start to sell something new, we say, oh, what does that thing do? And let me sell the features. Right. This is how fast it goes, or this is the you know what it shows you, or what it will do, or um, and sometimes we take features into cost and we couple like this is what it's worth because now when I think about this scenario of a new market, a new customer, it's understanding where the customer's at today. All right. So in your question about a, a VR headset for surgery, it's you know having that conversation to say what are the current challenges, where you're at today. What are you doing? What would you like to be able to do, right? Which is where I think that early stage sales is very, very close to market development and uh, what the product, kind of product-oriented founders have been doing most likely is, you know, do people want this? What would they use it for? And using some of those same questions. So if a found, especially a founder who's selling, I would say get them to as close to using the the kind of product mindset that, they, that they're probably using to develop product, right? Like, how would you use this? What are you expecting to see? Why would you use this? What do you need? Um, those types of questions can lead to the right conversation where you can start to educate and say, oh, yeah, well, the thing that you're talking about is something that we do or is something we're building for in the future or is something we're thinking about. And that, I think, will tee up the right type of atmosphere so that you can you know, start to convert business from that. Yeah, I would love if you could take that into an example of how to then convert that into the sales process. The educating the market or educating the client is obviously a really important early part of the process, mm -hmm. and you could take that with any technology, um, possibly with any new company even, because you gotta educate them about your specific way of doing things, but really it comes in sort of generational waves. Retargeting was never a thing, let's teach about retargeting. Self-driving cars were never a thing, let's teach about self-driving cars. Uh, would love to hear any sort of anecdote or story of when you've taken that, or you worked with a company to take that period of time, and said, well, this is how you convert from that stage into, well, let's talk about the sale. Yeah. Because I find, and many people probably find a salesperson, hey, we got Sally on the phone from this giant Fortune 100. Uh, she's interested. We're learning. She's interested. We're learning. Yeah. Four calls in. We're talking about the market. It's still interesting. She's still really interested. Should've and closed. then it's been eight months. You haven't even talked about what it's like to close. How do you recognize in a customer that they are educated enough? Yeah. And how do you move that into actually closing and getting something going on something pretty nascent? Yeah, I would say that the kind of the, the fastest hack here is to understand what else that customer buys, right? So here's here's an example, right? So if I so if I'm you know with your VR headset example, so if I'm talking to somebody who's the director of training at a surgery lab, I reach out to them and say, what other tools do you use? I start to learn about it, and I realize they have tools. And how have they purchased those tools? What are they spending on those tools? You walk into a, a, a surgery clinic, you see that they've got you know a bunch of tables that are furnished by Stryker. How did those tables get there? And if you can learn about that, then you can match that buying process. Did they buy the equipment? Was the equipment donated? If it's donated, then perhaps you need to sell a partnership into somebody who's donating to that surgery center, right? Like one of the big you know, medical device companies that might want to do a co-branding and put your logo or their logo on your device. 
another example is you know when you know maybe this maybe your your audience might might relate to this but you know think about sales tools right if I talk to somebody who's got a sales team of you know uh, 10 people and they use Salesforce they also use some you know enterprise email solutions like a Marketo or a Loqua the chance that they've spent around $100,000 to support that team is very high Whereas another early stage company, you call and you say, hey, what are you guys using? And they say, oh, we use HubSpot, we use HubSpot CRM and, and HubSpot email. That means they're probably not spending much more than two or 3,000 to support the same 10-person team. And I'm not arguing which one's right or wrong on sales tools. What I'm saying is, you just learned about someone's qualified buying process. If they've spent $100,000 to support a team of 10, you know how they've procured it. You can say, who brought Salesforce in the organization? Who's your Salesforce admin? Right? There are tools like that for every business, software in the world. And so every business and every vertical has a bunch of software tools. And when you can learn about who sponsored that, who bought that, why they buy it, what their budget authority is, like how they think about it. And a lot of times with product founders, the, the technical product folks who are building tools, what they kind of fail to recognize when they put their sales hat on is that they might be a buyer in a different world. Right, like you may have been the person who bought this tool at your last company. That's why you started the company. How did you buy it? What else did you buy? When I give talks to, you know, when I, I gave a talk a couple weeks ago called Sales Live at 500 Startups, I asked people to raise their hand if they've ever made a purchase on behalf of a corporation. Three hands went up. The guy that had bought something for a bank said, "This is how I bought when I was at the bank. I ran IT. This is what I did. This is what my purchase approval was." That is great intel to match. And so it's not really about the education is done, let's flip the switch and now let's sell, but let's instead educate in the same path that that customer is used to. Because you can disrupt what they're going to use or you can disrupt the way they buy it. You can't disrupt both at the same time. One of the things that happens in this process is as education continues, as the relationship builds, is eventually pricing comes into the mix. And oftentimes, these brand new technologies that people haven't seen before that come in generational waves, they go one of two ways. Either they are priced a, I mean, 10 times lower than anything anyone's ever seen before. I can't believe I ever paid these kinds of prices. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're paying pennies on the dollar because it's something technology enabled. Many times, that is maybe true, but maybe it's also supported by venture capital dollars. Maybe that's not the actual reality. And even to bring you this vision of lower cost, the actual product itself is much more expensive. We could take our magical VR for surgery thing, where we say right now you're doing surgeries on cadavers, keeping cadavers cold, and, and proper is really, really expensive. Now with VR, you can do this considerably cheaper. Think about what you can save. Now while that's true, supporting the actual VR system, the headsets are expensive, and there's all these challenges with it, and creating the right mm -hmm. environment for it that is a lot more expensive today, but you'll say this cost will lower over time. So, assuming that to be true, how do you advise companies and salespeople to think about the pricing of their brand new technologies? Do they, A, undercut at all costs and just try to get into the market, at, for maybe for the best customers? Do they, B, say, you know what, there's this option today, we're gonna price out exactly that option, make their buying opportunity easy? Or do you say, C, price that as close to what it costs you to run the service as possible, see how high you can get, and see which customers are willing to pay that because those are the customers that are going to stick through you for the longest period of time, the customers that need it the most, the customers that will invest the most in you and give you the most feedback. I've heard uh, good things about all three of those options, and maybe there's a fourth and a fifth I'm not thinking about, but how do you think about pricing uh, in the earliest stages of new technologies? I think pricing is tough. I think the, the first piece is I would suggest that, that founders 
uh, again, know the customer, know what they're buying, right? Think about the example I gave with Salesforce versus HubSpot. If you know how much someone's already investing, then you actually know what the risk is and what they're, um, maybe even know why they're investing, right? The second piece is understand what the, the cost of the problem is, right? So if, you know, the, the cadaver story that you just told, which is now freaking me out because I'm thinking too hard. <laughs> it, it reminds me of one of the, like the weirdest sales pitches I ever had, which we'll get to maybe in a little bit. But um, how much does a cadaver cost? How much does a professor cost over that cadaver? Let's, let's do all that math and then say, you know, and you also said it costs to keep them cold. I hadn't even thought of that. That's also grossing me out. And so we <laughs> add that. Right? I don't know where this comes from. I never yeah. worked in the industry. I'm well, obsessed now with cadavers. You're going to love this story in a minute. But um, do that math and let's say you come up with, you know, to, to educate five students in a workshop, it's, you know, $100,000 or whatever the number is. Now, when you know that that's a $100,000 problem and you start to figure out, hey, this is how often they do it, um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the kind of standard rule of thumb is can you be 10x better than what they're currently doing? That's how we think about is the product going to be good enough? Think about that in terms of cost, right? I'm not saying go in at one-tenth the price, but go in with that improvement kind of pre-calculated. What do you think the ROI will be? Uh, another way to ask the third option is to ask yourself the question of what would you buy if you were in that role, right? So if you were the let's say you're building a security product because it's a little you know a little less grotesque right if you're building a cybersecurity product and you have the technical chops to go be director of cybersecurity at you know whatever firm what would you buy how would you buy it how much would you spend on this how big of a problem do you think it is banking costs a lot of money if you get hacked more banking and healthcare insurance for sure costs you a lot of money to get hacked but small startups you get hacked you're not losing a bunch of data that's going to be cost them less and so if you've got an SMB cyber product, you're probably not going to be able to charge that much for it because it's not a huge problem. Here's a, here's a quick shortcut to get to that same number of how much the problem is, is to figure out how many people are dedicated to solving that problem. So if you've got drones that sweep a gym floor, go figure out that, you know, that high school, how many custodians they're employing. Go look for active job postings or check on Glassdoor. All right, this school district has 20 custodians. They've got 20 schools. All right, so it's probably one custodian each. What do they make? Check on Glassdoor. Maybe look at a listing. See what that hourly is and do the math and say, okay, this, you know, cleaning drone is worth X, you know, in terms of an employee cost, right? Maybe it also makes it even cleaner and that's better to meet a particular standard. Now you can start to do the math. Well, the question that. stands, do you begin, is there ever value to pricing considerably higher or is it a strategy worth even, how do you think about the strategy of pricing higher than what the current solution is with the vision of then lowering the cost much later? Because it's always, it's hmm. easy if you have the backing, if you have the venture capital backing, it's easy to say undercut or match or do whatever, our technology is better, yeah. over time it'll decrease. The, the pricing higher one is one I'd love to hear your thoughts on because I've heard it both ways where on the one hand, don't bother with pricing higher, you're fighting an uphill battle to do it. And on the other is, if it costs you at the moment mm -hmm. 2X to build whatever dr drones that sweep floors mm -hmm. to be less grotesque than it does janitors, well, you're gonna be losing a heck of a lot of money unless you're charging at least close to what it costs you. Yeah, so I, I think that pricing should be efficient because there's no guarantee that you get the next round, right? Most of the startups mm -hmm. I work with are outside of Silicon Valley where they're not guaranteed that Series A or Series B. And, and even the companies that are here are not 
often guaranteed that. And so having something that, you know, is priced pretty close to what the market thinks is fair, as well as kind of, yeah, sure, R&D-wise, the first one's going to cost you a lot more than the second or third. Mm-hmm. But pricing it to to a level of efficiency, I think, is probably a good idea overall. What does that mean? Uh, if it's going to cost you 100 bucks to make, don't don't sell it for 50 just because you want to undercut you know don't don't uh, don't subsidize unless you unless you really have to right I think there are a lot of big companies that are subsidized that by VC dollars and that doesn't actually tell you about the experiment the thing that I would say about just the, the pricing thing is you know yeah you're right if you price it really high the, the main byproduct is that that's going to encourage the, the buyer to be more committed theoretically right they may not all you know you may lose some deals but um, we also won't know, did you lose the deal because of the price? Did you lose the deal because of the product? Did you lose the deal because of the relationship? Um, and early stage founders are often asking, is it me or is it the product? Did I do something wrong when I'm selling or is the product not what they want? How would you take one of those pieces out of the equation? Right? How do you make sure that the proce- if the process matches the way they buy other things, you can go ahead and say it's not going to be the process Let's find out if the, if the tool is really valuable and then figure out the price from there, figure out if it's something that they actually want at that price, um, or match the price of a current competitor and then practice on the process and test that out. I know it's a non-answer still, but you know, I don't think that it's as easy as just saying, hey, go double it. You know, some of the sales advice out there is once, it, once you get it, right, and uh, this is one that I hear from Jason Lincoln occasionally, right, he says, once you get it right, double the price. Uh, and then double it again and see, you know, test it to that point where it flatlines. That only works if you're controlling all the other variables in your experiment. If you're not controlling for the other variables, you're not going to know what changed. Um, When you have a tool where, um, well, in most cases, let's say, okay, let's take the janitor thing again, right? So we're going to go and we're going to say, you know, our drone will clean the high school much faster than, than a human will. Um, safer, whatever, you know, we solve for all that stuff. If a school district has 100 schools and we put a drone in there to go clean it, uh, clean one school, that's not going to move the needle at all. And so the other question on pricing is asking for enough of a rollout that actually tells a story internally in that company, right? When we were at AdRoll and we're selling advertising, we'd have a lot of people say, this makes sense, let's try a $25 test because that was the lowest budget you could buy. When Microsoft tried to do that, I was, you know, I was like, this is not going to move the needle at all. What, and then instead they said, all right, well, let's do, you know, dedicate a certain amount of our monthly budget for a certain amount of time so then we can actually see something that actually, you know, kind of will change that number. And in that case, they were, they did come back and we did have a really successful campaign that was a lot more than $25 because then they had enough data they could actually evaluate if it was working. Is there ever a time where pricing too low can sort of bite you in the butt? For example, this yeah. Microsoft thing, if you're talking to somebody at Microsoft and you say, oh, let's run a $25 test, that's probably not worth the time it takes the individual to sign the piece of paper to agree to it. Not at all. Right? Not worth it. So when is, when is pricing too low? What are the risks of pricing too low? Well, that's the biggest risk, right, is it's not worth their time, not worth their energy. You know, at a big company, you know, that, that person needs it to be a big enough project that moves the needle for their... Remember, you're selling to somebody who's going to go to a staff meeting and tell people what they're doing. If that's the case, then you know you can't you can't expect them to go into a meeting and say, "Oh, I just bought this thing. It was twenty five dollars, and we got three extra sales because of it." They're gonna get you booed know? out of the meeting and demoted. Absolutely. But if you got three extra sales into a company that does an average order value of you know ten million dollars, 
you just had a thirty million dollar campaign come through, right? That's that's that is significant. Kind of, you know, I guess it depends on the size of the company, but most companies that would be a really significant number that people would want to talk about. Yeah. Um, so could you price too low? Absolutely. You want to be in a place where your your pricing is aligned, so it's not the thing that people are saying yes or no to because of. Because if because if somebody's deciding yes or no, if they're if they're price sensitive, and they're deciding yes or no on this product because of what it costs then you're backed in a corner where you can you really only have one tool which is the discount right if instead they're making that decision based on value which is you know ratio of what the price is to what it's actually going to do for them that gives you a little more leeway right because then you can say oh well, if we double the value by having you know two of these things two of these robots or two of these headsets or something like that um, does that change the efficiency at all and when it does you start to get to this tipping point where people go yeah this makes a lot of sense You'd be surprised at how many people are not making this decision based on price, though, especially B2B sales, bigger companies. The, the decision's not usually about how much does it cost. That's usually the qualifying question because it's the one thing buyers know to ask right away because their boss is going to ask them. But instead, if you can get out of that and have a different conversation, you'll learn a lot more quicker than just getting yourself eliminated based on, based on price. A, a lot of the last bit of the conversation here has been about uh, thinking about an approach to something, thinking about the relationship you're building with something, thinking about in many ways the values you have in your sales structure, your sales style. Uh, right now with what you do, um, you talk a lot about values and you help a lot of leaders and companies think about their values. Yeah. How do early stage companies, especially early stage sales organizations, think about the values they want to embed in the people doing their sales? Mm -hmm. Also, let's learn how that changes as you work with larger and larger companies, now some public companies. How do those maybe not, well, A, how do the values change, but B, how does perhaps that implementation of or communication of those values change from the largest companies to the smallest companies? Yeah. Well, let's start first with, with the value of trust, right? We want to be in a place where our customers trust us. And that's also a lot of the reason why early stage founders get worried about that first sales hire because they're worried that their customer won't trust a salesperson to sell it. Instead, it needs to be someone technical who knows it. Um, we can test for the, you know, does somebody trust based on, um, there's a great book called The Trusted Advisor by David Meister. And, and he talks about this trust equation. He says trust is equal to, and it's a formula of credibility, reliability, and intimacy over self-orientation, right? So that's kind of a tough, you know, fraction without kind of breaking down a little bit, but just think about if you're gonna define how much you trust somebody by whether or not they're credible, reliable, and whether or not there's some level of business intimacy there, they're, you know, have disclosed why they're doing this, why they're in sales, why they built the product, maybe it's something about the company history, and then the, you know, kind of the, the bottom number there is the self-orientation, right? Are they doing this out of selfishness? Is it just for them, just for a commission, uh, just so that they can be successful? Or are they actually thinking about changing an industry or making somebody better or making you better because they got into it because they care, right? Like, I'm not a coach for the money. I'm, a, I'm an executive coach because I think this is the best way to see the world that I envision, right? So um, when you think about that, you think about, okay, now we're aligning to can I trust my people, right? That's, so that's, that's value one is trustworthiness. Um, often when we, talk about, when we talk about sales, we talk about people's aversion to sales. Um, a way to, to encourage the people around you uh, to align with the values of the founder and values of the company 
uh, often can be set by what questions are asked. What questions are you asking in the interview? What questions are you asking at the team meeting that reveals, you know, kind of what, you know, values you have or what incentives you want to put into place? Uh, a quick example would be, um, you know, if you're testing whether or not the market is interested, you actually, there's an argument to be made for not testing based on who buys what. You can't say the market is interested, yes or no, by whether or not they bought the headsets for our, our cadaver lab. Whether or not they return the call, it will tell you whether or not there's an interest in new technology in the space. Whether or not they can buy, maybe academic cycles are on a year or two year academic cycle to go buy something. Right? So if you want to test that, it's really, did they write you back? Are they interested? Is there, are the right people involved in this conversation? You know, is it, you know, are you talking to deans or are you talking to tech guys who think VR is cool? That can tell you whether or not they're interested. All right, so here's how we back that into values, right? So as a, as a leader or a CEO or a sales leader, when you go into the team and you say, hey, I want to know how many you know, headsets we sold, that's going to be one number that looks at the whole process. But instead you say, how many people got back to us for that first meeting? Now you're showing that what you're interested in is having conversations. What you're supporting is having conversations, as opposed to saying, I just care about how much money we're making, how many devices we're sold. Are, are conversations in some ways a false positive uh, in the sense that, well, you have a lot yeah. of conversations, never make the close, and the company's out of business anyway, even though there's lots of nice conversations? <laughs> well, yeah, if you're, you know, could it be a false positive? It's a false positive if you're talking about whether or not someone wants to buy your stuff. If you're, if you're testing whether or not something's interested about tech in that marketplace, right? We're so we're going back to sales is just customer development, right? A point that, that, that we discussed before. So um, I feel like that, that gets us pretty close to being able to communicate the values of the founder by what you ask about, right? Another way to do it is to say, okay, I'm only going to ask, you know, what the value per seat is. Selling a $5 seat, selling $6 a seat. If that's the metric that I'm looking at every week from my sales report, as opposed to the total dollar amount, right? Maybe my values say that I really want people using the product that we're selling, not just closing it, right? I care about adoption. Well, then let's measure adoption and then talk about it internally, right? Values aren't just are you trustworthy, are you happy at work, do we have a good ball pit to play in, right? It's it's actually you know can be communicated by what questions the, the leadership team asks. Do you find that when you work with leadership team, say even experienced ones, not yeah. those doing this for the yeah. first time, they've codified this at all on their own in advance of conversations with you, or is it very nebulous oftentimes, and, and that's yeah. one of the challenges? The highest performing leaders that I meet and work with are the ones that already can kind of discuss their value system. They know why it's there. You know, I started my career in education, and we couldn't actually go teach in a classroom before we wrote out our philosophy on education. The funny thing is, like, teachers always teach the way they're taught. So if you come out of a school that teaches a certain way or with a particular pedagogy, you're likely going to do that as a, as, as a teacher. The same is, is likely true for what sales organization you come up in, right? There's a lot of people who talk, you know, smack about, you know, people that started at Yelp or started at Oracle or started wherever. Um, and, and I'm not going to go into the debate about, you know, what's the best sales training or what's the best background. But if you're in the environment where some of those habits or things happen, you're likely going to use them, which is a great thing. So sales reps that come up in an environment that's a high-velocity sales organization, like 
a Yelp where there's a lot of reps calling for a five to five hundred to a thousand dollar ad buy, um, and I don't know what their current pricing is, then uh, they're going to be conditioned around some of the tools that happen to keep sales moving that fast, closing 10, 20, 30 deals a week to get that number, right? Whereas um, when you think about you know later stage, right, later stage companies, uh, or not necessarily later stage, but, but higher ACV companies rather, um, you want to make sure that uh, you're doing certain things that support a bigger deal as opposed to a transactional sale, right? So um, when I talk to leaders about what their value systems are, uh, some of them are very tactical of like, hey, these are the things that I, that I like about the work we do. And sometimes it gets into some of the, this is the way I feel, this is what I, I want to, you know, I really value transparency on the team. You know, I talked to somebody the other day that um, their company really values transparency. He knew why, and he also knew where it was aspirational. He said, hey, well, this is what we're doing, and this is the part that we know we're not doing well. We want to be more transparent in this and this and this regard, right? That's a pretty advanced kind of self-awareness. You know, having self-awareness as a leader is one thing. Having self-awareness as an organizationally, where you all know, like, this is what we're interested in, this is why. I think that that's pretty powerful. Do you have a series of, as you do this coaching and you're trying to bring leaders to be their best, do you have a series of maybe go-to questions that you find yourself asking each and every time? When I'm talking to a leader about what their value system is, I don't necessarily have go-to questions. I do use a... Uh, I do use a tool called the leadership inventory where I'll sit down with a leader and help them kind of evaluate how they think they're doing and how their team thinks they're doing, as well as how the employee and how the team think they're doing. Um, that can often lead to a really powerful kind of self-awareness um, that, that you can't get without doing that kind of 360-degree re- review and start thinking about yourself. Um, that, I find, is really helpful. In terms of evaluating the values like a, a leader might when they're hiring, um, the I would say, you know, think about a time when you feel like you've been pushed to your edge and you had to make a moral decision about, about work. For me, that's whether or not you lie to a customer about a refund, right? When you have to go and tell somebody, look, we took your money and we didn't deliver that thing that we said we we're going to. That's why my favorite interview question for a sales rep is, tell me about a time you gave a customer bad news. The answer to that will reveal whether or not this person and I agree on what to do in that case. There are a lot of people who think that it's totally respectful to say, all right, I'm going to hold my breath and hope they don't notice. Other people that want to call and be direct, some want to kind of spin that and say, yeah, 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 we, we didn't really exactly do what you said we are going to do, but we did kind of what we said we are going to do. I worked for somebody who... Um, this was one of the hardest jobs I had in San Francisco. He was uh, um, he, he was booking a wedding venue, and uh, he wouldn't sign his copy of the contract. And so the, the bride would sign would sign off, and then there'd be always be excuses of why he didn't send his his side of the executed contract because he wanted to have the ability to get out of it later. Right now, I don't know how I test that as an employee. Right, there's maybe some other questions that I would ask that might might have led me to find out about that. But um, that's somebody who, you know, if they're going to test, you know, does somebody line up their values, they're probably looking for somebody who's always going to do what's right for the organization. Other people may say do what's right for the customer no matter what. just kind of depends on where you're at and what you want your organization to be. Uh, Well, on that note, I want to take a quick pivot and in our last few minutes here Mm -hmm. ask you some rapid-fire questions. 
Uh, I will ask them quickly. You can answer them as slowly or as quickly as you would like. You ready? Yeah. All right. You teased it, but what is your weirdest sales story? A weirdest sales story is actually selling into a surgery center that had a bunch of cadavers. And it was weird in two ways. One, um, the prospect said, make sure you bring a jacket. And I thought that was strange. And he said, our office is near, near some coolers, so make sure you bring a jacket. Um, and it was the, the, uh, uh, U- U- it was the U- University of California, San Francisco's like, surgery center at San Francisco General. And that's where they teach ortho- orthopedic surgery, like knee replacements, hip replacements, stuff like that. So we get to this meeting, and, and, and I'm a, usually a pretty queasy person when it comes to, like, medical stuff. I grew up in a family that didn't, didn't really do a lot of going to the doctor. So I'm, so this is like, you know, but I needed the cash, right? This was like I was, we were very heavily incentivized in the sales org. I was selling website uh, development. And so I went there with my sales engineer, this guy James. And uh, the favorite moment of that whole thing is as I'm asking discovery questions to find out what type of teaching they do. James is leaning up against this really beautiful, like, if you've ever been in a surgery center, they've got these beautiful, like, stainless steel tables that would make awesome, you know, like, really smooth desks. And so J- James is leaning up against one, and she goes, well, just yesterday we had 10 heads here for a Botox <laughs> demonstration. And I, I saw him almost lose his lunch. It, it grossed him out so much. It was, it was awesome. It was such a funny thing. Um, then, you know, you think about it too hard, and you think, wow, you know, you donate your body to science, you end up, you know, getting a Botox test, yeah. you know, on, on this... <laughs> You know, years later, and, and you know, some back there's, there's worse things that the scientific community could have yeah. done to my my body, <laughs> probably. Uh, so, yeah, that was probably one of the weirdest uh, discovery meetings I ever had. Very cool. Um, what is uh, any sales or startup book that have been particularly helpful to you? You mentioned uh, Trusted Advisor. I like Trusted Advisor. That's really written more around like how to create like professional services relationships for like lawyers and accountants and things like that, because um, that's what his research came out of. So if you're in a really complicated sale, becoming that trusted advisor, I think, makes a lot of sense. If you're at a high-velocity sales organization, read that book and say, how can I do this as fast as possible? Because I might only have a 10-minute phone call to kind of create that trust. In general, I think sales books are about 50 to 60% wrong because founders will read them and think about this as an absolute value for their organization. Uh, your job as a founder, early-stage sales employee, is to decide what fits for your organization. So read them all and pick and choose what works for you, right? If I had to point to a favorite, you know, for the super early stage, there's a lot of lessons from Mark Roberts's book, uh, Sales Acceleration Formula, around hiring, around specifically tracking interview responses, and then tracking that to a three-month employee review. There's a whole chapter on, on kind of hiring and, and employees, and I think that might be universal to see kind of what worked for the interview and how they do nine months in or three months in, nine months in. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. All right. Uh, what is the sale you are most proud of landing? Uh, I don't know how long the statute of limitations I'm talking about this one is, but um, I, I think that there's a critical point for every person who's done sales where they have learned that sales isn't luck. People who aren't sellers, they have not learned that, and they think everything is just about luck and holding your breath. And even people who've been in sales for many years haven't overcome that, that feeling. And so for me, it was uh, mid-November of 2011, and uh, the sale was to Fandango. It was an advertising deal. Um, and it was the first time that I actually saw an action, you know, three months earlier translate into exactly the way the deal closed. 
Now it wasn't the best client to have had, and there's that's a whole other story for a beer. But um, but it was the first time I realized sales wasn't luck, um, and it was it closed like clockwork. I remember specifically where I was because my first daughter Emma was born during that sales process, and so I had to leave work for paternity leave and and to go and do our thing. But I knew that everything was basically on a conveyor belt to close and get set up and run uh, smoothly and correctly. And so that was. That was one that I'm particularly proud of. Very cool. What is uh, one of your biggest failures that has later led to success? Uh, you mentioned before you had a big leadership fail. Mm. My leadership fail is actually another kind of uh, early stage story where things started to go really well and uh, with building out an SDR team, we decided to experiment with hiding, hiring an outsource team. I don't know if you've used outsource sales before in your, your career, but um, we went and... Uh, we had two, two projects, and we hired five-person teams for each one. One was an inside sales team that we wanted to build, and they were empowered to kind of close deals. And the team that I had was a outsourced sales development team where uh, these five people were going to set appointments, and they would get handed off. I thought the point of having an outsourced team was so you didn't have to know them, right? So I didn't want to actually like know their names. It was, I thought it was like naming the lobsters in the tank where you couldn't get rid of them and fire them. At this point in my management career, I had not hired or fired very much at all. And so to have five new people on the team, um, I just said, hey, you know what? They're going to work or not work. The whole point of outsourcing is just to be able to get rid of them if they don't fit. Uh, fail, right? Because I'll tell you exactly what happened. The, the other manager uh, who went and spent time with his outsource team, trained them, gave them T-shirts, put pennants on the wall, set up you know, sales training programs and spin-ups and things like that, uh, that team you know, adopted very quickly and has continued to grow. That grew to about 100 people within a year, whereas my you know, team of five, that lasted maybe six weeks before we spun it down. Could I have gotten it to work? Yes, but, um, but the culture wasn't there, the efficiency wasn't there, the communication wasn't there, the management group there was like, hey, how come you're not spending more time making sure things are lined up to be successful? Because I said, hey, you're either going to perform or not perform, we're going to cut you loose. And that, um, looking back, is the kind of the worst way to set up a sales team. Uh, and I know there are a lot of founders who want to do that even with, a, with an inside team that, that's working for them. Hey, we're going to try this out for a little bit. And I think people know when they're experimented on. I, I do. I think that they know that and they know what your commitment is to them. If your commitment is let's make this work because the organization is going to need sales uh, and you're going to have a job regardless because we're going to make it work, um, then there are ways that you incentivize that are very different than black or white, it, it either works or doesn't, you know, you, we, it either works or we fire you. Um, and I just, I wish I hadn't had, had that mindset, but I learned a lot from it. All right, well, I got two final questions for All you, right. Ryan. Uh, the first is something I wish somebody had asked me one day. Yeah. You have 30 seconds to sell me this pen. Oh, you wish somebody asked you this I always wanted this interview question. Uh, you're down to 28 seconds, Ryan. Sell me this pen. Oh, um, I think I would start with asking you about your notes. So tell me, what notes have you been writing over there? You've got five or six things written down. Uh, I sort of summaries of some of the things that I've really enjoyed talking about, pricing too low, uh, risks of such a thing, when to uh -huh. price high. And what are you going to use those notes for? Uh, I'm going to create a summary of our conversation and eventually put this yeah. into a book format. Are, are podcasts or books successful without having those summaries? I don't think they would be. Okay, so uh, what, you know, what kind of, if, that, if that's valuable to you, you know, 
Would you give me a dollar for this bit? It depends um, on how much money I make off my advertising yeah. here. Maybe some ad roll experience. Uh, maybe, <laughs> uh, that's maybe the worst pen sale possible, but it really just comes down to like values and um, you know what what some what someone's problem they're trying to solve is right. You're not going to be successful without those notes. I love um, it. I know that, and that's what I would probably set up for you on that. Awesome, Ryan. This has been a ton of fun. Uh, please tell all of us where can people find some of the stuff you're writing about, speaking about. Yeah. Where can they learn more about you? So I, I write a lot, or I link to a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. Feel free to follow, or if we've met before, you know, send me a request. It's just J Ryan Williams. So LinkedIn.in slash J Ryan Williams. Um, and then uh, I, I have a lot of resources for early stage sales at salescollider.com, which was the uh, kind of my advisory portfolio that I'd set up a few years ago. Uh, many of those workshops, couple interviews that are on there that are really, I think, you know, pretty helpful. So if you go to salescollider.com slash blog, uh, you can hear from some of the experts I've met, some of the interviews I've done, uh, as well as some talks. Awesome. Ryan, cool. thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate this was it. great. Well, there you have it, Ryan Williams, ladies and gentlemen. Competition from the big players could be a blessing. There are clever ways to learn about what persuades your customers to buy. And pricing? Well, there's no right answer there, but pricing high might be better than pricing low. If you like the podcast, leave us a review. If you didn't, tweet me at alubarski2 and we'll make it all better. Thanks, and happy selling.